1: This episode is being recorded on Tuesday, May 30th, 2017. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg,
0: and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, you're uh, on the road again. I am. I am in not sunny New York City today. Cool. Well, uh, I finally get to ask if you've been to the Amazon store. It's opened, and there was a lot of Twitter activity over the weekend, and uh, I'm assuming that's going to be on your list of places to visit. It is. I uh, Today was my first day here, and I did not make it today,
1: but I will over the next couple of days. Uh, candidly, I'm not expecting to see anything that uh, we haven't seen in the Chicago store. And in fact, it sounds like it may be a subset of the Chicago store. So uh, look for a full report in the next podcast.
0: Cool. Well, listeners, I'm sure, are on the edge of their seat for that. And uh, well, folks, one of the topics we cover a lot here on the Jason and Scott show is what I like to call mallageddon. Um, that's the relentless drumbeat in the last year, year and a half of store closures, mall closures and pressure pressure on physical brick and mortar retail. To help listeners understand better what's going on out there in the exciting world of physical retail, we decided to go right to Wall Street. Jason physically went, uh, but we're virtually going to take you there. Today on the show, we're excited to welcome Michael Bonetti. Michael is a managing director at UBS covering apparel and footwear brands department stores, and specialty retailers. He has a very broad coverage universe, and it may actually be simpler to list the things he doesn't cover, but let me take a shot at this. His uh, coverage universe includes Abercrombie & Fitch, American Eagle Outfitters, Chico's Coach Express, Finish Line, Foot Locker, Gap, Hanes Brands, J. Jill, J. C. Penny, Kohl's, L Brands, Lululemon, Macy's, Nike, Nordstrom, PVH Corp, Ralph Lauren Corp, Ross Stores, TJ Maxx, Under Armour, Urban Outfitters and VF Corp. Whew. Well, that was a mouthful, Michael. We're really excited to have you on the Jason and Scott show.
2: Thanks. It's nice to, to be here, guys. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Cool. And you are uh, one of those rare Wall Streeters that is not in New York. Is that right?
2: Yeah, actually. Well, we work. At, I work at a New York firm. I'm in. Uh, I'm in Chicago. Though I live in Chicago.
1: Uh, I love to have fellow Chicagoans on the show, Michael. A <laughs> uh, good deal.
2: Although. Uh, you, you're not here very much, I think, Jase. Uh
1: this is true. I am not there as much as I would like to be. Uh but the next time I'm I'm there, we'll have to have you back on the show and we can make fun of Scott together. Love to. Good deal. Um so before we jump into it, we'd love to give the listeners a little bit of background about how you came to the retail business. Um can you can you sort of walk us through your your background a bit?
2: Sure. Uh absolutely. So Quick intro on me. I wanted to go into research and uh, investment research uh, straight out of business school. That was about 14 years ago already. I got really lucky right out of school. I got a job at a big global bank at UBS, and I've been here the whole time. Um, I started out just randomly getting a job on the consumer and retail team as an associate on the restaurant sector, but that sector didn't have enough Amazon risk for me. So about nine years ago, Asked me if I wanted to cover some of the retail stocks. Um, And so I started out covering the branded apparel and footwear companies that you just mentioned Nike and Under Armour and Ralph Lauren and Coach. It's been super fun. And I can honestly say the best part of my job is even though we're just grinding it out here, analyzing spreadsheets and income statement, I cover the consumer sector and not just any sector, the apparel and the footwear names. So when you tell people that, they jump right in. And everybody's got an opinion on these brands because we all interact with them every day and use them. And I can't tell you how many times. You know, people outside of the industry try to, try to help me out with my stock calls with stories about how many kids on their kids soccer team are wearing Under Armour and Nike and uh, versus what they used to be. So it's great. Everybody knows these brands. Uh, about five years ago, UBS asked me to have the department stores, um, and those guys have a lot of secular challenges today. But they're still really big companies. Um and it's really important to where Americans shop for these categories. And then about two years ago, we added the off-price retailers you just mentioned, like TJ Maxx, and some of them all retailers like Lululemon and American Eagle. So pretty broad coverage at this point, um, but really really lets us get at the heart of everything that's in the consumer's closet, the brands they buy and where they go to buy them.
1: Nice. And Michael, is it, it's ironic, if you would have stuck it out in the restaurant industry long enough, I have a feeling the Amazon risk would have eventually gotten there. <laughs>
2: Eventually we'll get there. Uber's getting there too, right?
0: So. Exa- exactly. Yeah. Or you could have jumped to cloud computing and avoided it. Oh, wait. <laughs>
2: right.
0: <laughs> maybe like <laughs> logistics
1: or yeah. telecommunications or something like that, maybe.
0: Cool. Well, let's kick it off kind of at a 30,000-foot level. Um, it's Here we're right in the middle of Q2, kind of two-thirds wave. Done with the quarter. Uh, We've seen the Q1 results come out, and then we're starting to see the same source sales for May. Um, So we have a pretty good read on how 17 is shaping up for folks. Give us a give us kind of broad overview of what you're seeing out there.
2: Yeah, so first quarter was, you know, by any stretch, quite a disappointment. And on the first quarter earnings season conference calls, that's when we heard from. You know, the management teams of these companies giving us their outlook for the year, for second quarter. And I would say the thing that's different is that they're trying to embrace a more conservative posture and realize that, you know, they don't know what's coming as well as they thought they had the last few years. So we've learned, um, you know, from some painful quarters in retail over the last two years. People have become more conservative as as they look at, you know, their first quarter results, which broadly... Missed, you know, expectations uh, that they had internally, and our own expectations on Wall Street. Um, they've taken a pretty conservative posture. Uh, for May, the results have been mixed. A lot of these guys reported, you know, middle of the month when they had, you know, sales numbers moving around around Mother's Day and things like that. So I think people, it, it's tough to say if, if a lot of these companies are being conservative because they don't have a clear view with the calendar shifting around, or they're just playing. Not liking what they're seeing and wanting to stay on the very cautious side. So I would say, in general, the same store sales outlook for the near term and for the year um, have have moved down uh, from these companies uh, as a gauge of what they think is going to be happening uh, over the next you know, three, six, nine months.
0: Interesting. Are there? Um, so if you look at your coverage universe, who's kind of on? You know, um, I don't know how you you do your ratings, but you know. Yeah. Anyone, anyone that you know when when you're out there talking to investors, who do you usually kind of point to as as someone that's kind of surviving or, or doing well right now?
2: Yeah, I would say probably the the best example would be you know PVH Corp, which you know listeners may remember as the old Phillips Van Husen company, uh, but they you know shortened their name to PVH a few years ago. They own Calvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger, name you know brands that they're much more well known for uh, these days, and they've just really positioned themselves well. Um it's it's surprisingly, you know, within a group that includes Nike, it's the most global name in our coverage. They have they have a full blown four region business, Asia, Latin America, Europe. So they've got a lot of global white space to attack and they're they're doing a really good job with it. Um and you know, I would say that names with as much momentum as, as that right now are very few and far between. Um mm.
0: uh, stores had a
2: good, you know, the off pricers, everybody loves value america after all right who doesn't love low prices The off pricers raw stores and tj maxx had good quarters um but beyond that as far as just the main mainstream retailers pvh is a fairly limited story right now
0: pvh is interesting because when i think of tommy i think ralph Lauren, um but ralph Lauren, you know is is not doing uh terribly well right now is, is it that global diversification that they have or like what what is it that's setting them apart
2: yeah, Tommy's. Um, you know, much. You know, as much as your your listeners maybe in the U.S. here and know know the brand here, it's a much more powerful brand in in Europe even than it is here, and now starting to expand pretty aggressively um, into Asia. So Tommy has its origins obviously in the U.S. and the, in the '90s, it was very popular, and it kind of went by the wayside, it went out of fashion. But they really restored a lot of strength to the brand in in Europe, and it's really a great. Uh, you know, basics, preppy, red, white, and blue type brand in Europe. And it's got a lot of momentum there. Ralph Lauren on the other side, I guess, and Tommy was coming from a lower base. So, you know, for them to grow and succeed was a little bit, um, a little bit easier during the most recent few years when Ralph got really big and really broadly distributed, selling a lot of similar products, you know, the red, white, and blues. And you you know what's happening in the end markets and the retailers um, right now that are, that are, most of them are going backwards, um so if you were really big heading into the going backwards, it's been even more painful for for brands like Ralph Lauren
1: and uh Michael, one of the things that that I've noticed it it sounds like in north america like the the biggest compliment you you give someone is that they're doing less badly than the than the industry as a whole it yeah uh I mean is that right like are are there any even like really small apparel brands that you think of, and you say like Wow they're they're really growing or bucking the trend or or is it like uh just a sort of a universal axiom at the at the moment that a, that apparel is pretty tough in North America.
2: Yeah, it's more universal than it has been. When I first covered the sector, you know, in the late 2000s even in the recession, there was There was moonshot little companies that were clearly going somewhere like Under Armour and Lululemon. They were just moving really, really fast. Um, And they were big enough to be on people's radars in the investing community. There's not a clear-cut subset of of small brands or retailers like that um, today. The ones that are the most interesting are ones that are kind of got one foot across the the bridge into into e-commerce and digital, and they're not quite big enough to be public companies yet so we cover brands like we cover companies like vf corp that owns about 30 brands they're probably looking around for some acquisitions in areas like that um, pvh which we mentioned before um recently bought an, an online intimate business um true and co which is um they they you know, women go on and do a fit quiz for their for their bras and for some of their intimates, and and you come out of that quiz really feeling like, hey, this retailer asked me some really good, intuitive questions. I'm going to trust them with purchases in this category that's really specific. Um, but it's a teeny tiny brand. You know, there aren't just there just aren't that many um, like the Under Armours and Lulus of a couple of years ago that are um, of big enough size to be public company stocks that still fit in that very high growth uh, rate today.
1: Interesting. It, it it seems like one of the potential challenges even on the acquisition front, like some of the, to your point, the sort of the, the pre public plays, the pure digital plays, the revolves or bonoboses or some, you know, I know they're not pure digital, but, um, digitally native brands, the, it almost seems like they're at, they're struggling to get big enough that they're even an interesting acquisition target for the VFs of the world. That's a,
2: that's a very, very good point. And, you know, the, the, the Bonobos or Bonobos, which, whichever you prefer to pronounce it, they've had, you know, they've had a relationship with Nordstrom for a long time. So some people have wondered if you know, that would be something that would make a good pairing or if, if Nordstrom would want to have them in-house. Um, for, you know, for whatever their reasons are, that hasn't, that hasn't come about. But that, that's the kind of model that people need to be thinking of, um, scaling it up into the brave new world versus, you know, versus in the past, Under Armour knew how to become a big brand. They were able to look at a lot of things Nike did, and they had a blueprint. And Michael Kors was able to look at the coach and say, here's how we're going to do this. Whereas these guys that are trying to figure out how to have inventory list stores and different kinds of shopping experiences um, and, and still you know have a very strong uh, online presence, too. You're kind of wandering off into the wilderness doing it yourselves in a lot of ways, and it's not quite as easy as it was back in the day.
0: For sure. How, what's that scale need to be for um... – you know, so maybe we have some fledgling brands out there listening. What, what do you have to be for uh, one of these brand houses to kind of consider you to be interesting?
2: Um, you know, there's I guess there's a couple of ways to think about that. But for you know VF, since we brought them up, I mean, I, and we mentioned you know True and Co, which is you know PVH didn't mention how big it was. My sense is that it's very small. They characterize it as insignificant earnings, mm-hmm. so they really. And that was a very small acquisition, but they really wanted to latch on to the technology and the expertise inside of that company. And frankly, if they can take what they learned from that acquisition and use it for Calvin Klein's women's uh, intimates business and l- lay that big brand on top of a new capability, well, that, that could end up being a home run for them. Um, for VF Corp, which is a much bigger company, you know, they've, the last big acquisition they did was Timberland, and that was six years ago. And why the big gap is, uh, you know, they've they've said, look, we really want something that's a billion dollars in revenues are bigger. We really want something that'll move the needle at our company that we can sink our teeth into. And those billion dollar acquisitions have proven very hard to come by. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if the industry shakes out and starts settling on things closer to the three to $400 million range um, as being a very, you know, good sweet spot, even the ones that thought in the past, the billions where we want to be. Uh, to, to add some scale to our business,
1: we've seen in some other segments where you could just pay a billion dollars for a company that's probably only worth three or four hundred million to get there too. I'm not sure that's a good yeah, strategy,
2: but <laughs> so you'd be trading. You'd be trading some balance sheet flexibility. You'd be paying up for a brand and uh, um, to try and bolt on some earnings in that case. And you know, it can work. That's a, a bet on yourself, and your board of directors like letting you bet on yourself. You know, Coach just bought Kate Spade in a lot of people's eyes are very similar brands. If you peel back the onion a little bit, they're fairly different. Kate's a much younger brand. Um, And coach just said, look, we think we can run this better. We can put it on our supply chain. Um, we can use our big global assets in China to, to really tap into these guys opportunity fast. The coach just thinks they can take it and they can extract earnings out of it faster than the company could on a standalone basis. So, you know, there's different answers, but you know, definitely there's people out there looking for, you know, particularly in this environment, to your point earlier, it's, it's very, very tough out there. And the guys that, we're feeling most comfortable with as stock investments are the ones that don't necessarily need uh, the economy to get better or the consumer to get better for the stock to work. They have internal projects like, you know, certainly we like Coach's stock because they have the Kate Spade brand to work on and pound some earnings out of that. Even if the consumer stays pretty tough.
1: Sure. One of the things we hear from a lot of the traditional brands that have big investments in brick and mortar is, you know they they beat the omni channel drum that like hey one of our competitive advantages is going to be omni channel and and you know there there's all these unique uh advertising and customer experience advantages around having physical stores so i a two part question um do you buy into that do you do you feel like there there is a potential competitive advantage in having stores and if so are there any brands that you think of as doing omni channel particularly well
2: well, there's two answers to that. There's there's the guys who have a lot of stores today that are saying, you know, we, stores are an advantage, but the reality is they probably need to go backwards. Um, and then there's there's startups, like you mentioned, a couple like Bonobos, things like that, that don't have stores today, that don't have to distract themselves with how do we sublet these things, how do we sell real estate and monetize it over the next few years. They can just say to themselves, look, if we started this thing from scratch, We don't want to get to a thousand stores. We want to get to a hundred and that's a much cleaner path forward. Those are much, those are very small companies. Um, And then as far as um, I think the second part of your question was just, you know, are they, was it, are they good at the Omni channel brick and mortar guys?
1: Yeah. Or is there any particular brand you think of as being better than the pack in terms of, of leveraging those stores for a competitive advantage?
2: Yeah. um, I would say that the, uh, you know, like some of the, some of the teenage brands that cater to a customer who's a digital native and are much more digital savvy. Um, the urban outfitters has a very, very big e-commerce business. I think it's up over, over 30%, which would be at the high end of, um, of the, the, the group that we cover. Um, one interesting little factoid was I think American Eagle, you know, a smaller, you know, teen retailer in the malls in the U S on their first quarter call. I think they said that they're, internet penetration as a percent of sales was up something like 700 basis points year over year. And I know just from listening to your show, you know, the average for overall retail in the U.S., much less for the apparel sector, is much, much lower than that. So that's kind of a, you know, that's kind of a heart-stopping comment when you hear a small retailer seeing that much of their traffic move online. It obviously speaks well to how well they're doing. Um, with their digital business, but um, that—that's the kind of data point that stops. If you cover, you know, stocks like I do that have several hundred to thousands of stores, that that kind of data point makes you stop and say, "Whoa, where where are we really headed here?" Yeah, even
1: like if you're different starting different at a uh, even if you're starting at a really nascent base, that's a big number. So that <laughs> uh, sure that that's very interesting. Uh, one of the the I sort of narratives you hear a lot. Speaking of e-commerce and and seeing it get bigger for some of these these retailers in the e-commerce industry, the story is all oh well, the apparel is in the tank and department stores are going away um, largely because of of the shift to online buying, right? And and so the you know the right. digital guys are convinced it's that that that's really the the big driver, and you know there are these charts floating around um on the on the internet that shows sort of you know twenty years ago department stores being ten percent of of consumer spending and now they 're down to a couple and, and and you know twenty years ago e commerce was two percent of consumer spending and now it 's up to ten and so it sort of looks like they flip flopped and you could say oh well that 's where it went, but then I know uh you you look at all the growth in those those discount stores and it you know they 've taken a bunch of market share from someplace and so is i 'm guessing the answer is both, but it, do you have a a sense for for where where the consumer is shifting is it going from from uh, brick and mortar to digital or is it going from uh full price to off price what's the
2: i mean those both those i would say those are very much both themes and they're very they're both very very powerful obviously e-commerce is irrefutably powerful but um you know the, just if you look at if you just look at um the big off-pricers, you think about TJ Maxx and Ross and then Burlington, which has gotten to be a bigger business here in the last few years, and just look at what those those companies' percent is of total uh, U.S. consumption in, in the apparel category. If you look at the period before the Great Recession, um, and they were just kind of humming along as a small percent of the total industry, and then when the recession hit, it was just an unbelievable ramp. You know, you had kids coming out of college with no jobs who maybe in the past they would have said to themselves, you know, I'm really a department store or Macy's or a Kohl's person. Um, you know, that's where I go to shop and, and maybe TJ's like kind of a secondary destination for me. Those days are over when you come out and you're on an unbelievable budget that you never thought you'd be pressed to. And and it became a very primary uh, source of a, a very primary destination for apparel for a lot of those consumers that were really stretched, and you just saw the numbers hit the ramp, and then the recession ended, and the, and the consumer just never left those stores. So they've just kept growing boxes, and they've had same source sales growth um, in their existing boxes that's been way on top of what the industry trends are. They're you know they're outpacing the department stores by anywhere from 600 yeah call it six to 10 percentage points as far as their growth rate every quarter that goes by at this point so that is you know it's not e-commerce which is the sexiest thing to talk about but it is a very powerful value equation it drives a lot of customers into those boxes Um, e-commerce is obviously the other one um and you know so there's different you know again within my group there's the retailers that have to deal with their traffic being down a significant amount and the brand's figuring out look we think the consumer still wants these products we just got to figure out how to give it to them where they want to buy them and they, they should be in okay shape longer term, but there's still, it, it's not, it's not a graceful transition. We'll put it that way.
0: One of the ironic things about that is the discounters usually don't they under index on e-commerce. So you mentioned like some of the mall based teen folks are kind of in the thirties. My understanding is department stores are, are pretty anemic when it comes to e-commerce.
2: Yeah, I think they're, um, they're many, many years behind. And again, they're trying to, they're trying to retrofit legacy assets that were built to, you know, you know, have back rooms and some consumer and some customer service people on the floor and cash registers. They're trying to retrofit those things to be able to ship from the stores, um, make their inventories more efficient. Um, you know, I think they're all very well aware of the situation that they face trying to make, you know, generate a return off those old assets. Um but if they, you know, if any one of the executives in these businesses had to, had it to start over, if you asked them how many stores would you have, what would you do differently, you know, you'd hear a lot more discussion about building for the digital future from the ground up. So there's no doubt that in their DNA and in their hearts, they're they're very much trying to figure out what to do. But I, I do know that it's obvious that you know, just from looking at stock prices as a scorecard, that it's you're you're at a generational change in the pressure on that on that category right now.
0: Yeah, and I, I mentioned at the top of the show the Molly Um, You know, there's there's been this. Uh, I just read an article today that was on Business Insider that, you know, there's 3,600 store closures so far this year. And they, I think they just straight lined that and they said, well, that equates to probably 10,000 this year. Um, yeah. Do you have a model on that? Or like, what's what's your point of view of, you know, how bad is it? Is uh, where are we? Or, you know, uh, you're a Chicagoan, so I'll use a baseball analogy. Is this like, is this the first inning of this whole thing, or are we in the, the stretch? What's
2: going on here? Second inning, maybe. I mean, very early innings, for sure. I think, um, you know, in, in my world, you know, again, the department stores are under a lot of pressure, but they are still the center of the wardrobe for a lot of, you know, the middle of America. And so if you look at them as like a bellwether, you've had Macy's come out and say, we're going to close 100 stores. You've had J.C. JCPenney come out and say, we're going to close 138. Um, Sears is not a stock that we cover. They're closing a bunch of stores um, they've been struggling for a long time. So you look at those and you think about what those malls are going to do when the, the Macy's drops off the end of it. Um, you know, w- we're not even close. And Not everybody has announced, not everybody, I would say after first quarter, with just a little period of time to judge, you know, we have we asked a bunch of these retailers, have you noticed any impact in the malls where a Macy's or a JCPenney went away? And they say, you know, probably not enough time has gone by yet. Well, we can probably fast forward for you what's going to happen in that mall. Um, and, and they just – most of these companies have not yet been able to sit down, analyze the data, and come out to their investors and say, look, here's how many stores we're going to have to close based on what's going on, based on all this traffic going to e-commerce, based on our co-tenants in these malls going away. So there are there are tons and tons of closures coming. I mean, the article you read today – I wouldn't be surprised if it's very, very close. And and frankly, even for the Macy's and J.C. of the world that have you know announced that many stores, they're doing their best to tell you what they think they need to do today based on a situation that's still a moving target. I you know I have no doubt in my mind that they'll be closing more stores um, as time goes on. And interestingly, when we talk to retail experts about it and say, you know, Macy's going to go from call it middle 700 stores down to mid 650 stores. And I don't mean to pick on Macy's just, um, they're a good bellwether to look at for department mm-hmm. stores. But you just say, look, you know, how do they know that's enough? And, and you know, the retail experts will quickly tell you, do you know what an organizational undertaking it is to close a hundred stores in a single year? So even if they wanted to, even if JCPenney, which was a thousand stores wanted to, it's just, it's so physically hard. I mean, it's it's like the full employment act for lawyers in the retail industry to go through each store and figure out how to unwind a very old lease agreement, how to how to unwind the co-tenancy clauses you have. A lot of these malls, the Macy's goes away, that lets a store like The Gap or Abercrombie look at their lease and say, hey, we signed this, you know, under the agreement that you were going to have a Macy's here. And with them going away, we don't, we can get out of this lease, right? It's, it's a very, very... Um, very much of a uh, spider's web that gets kicked off when these things start. So I, I have no idea that we're headed for bigger numbers.
0: Explain that a little bit more. So I'm I'm, a, I'm an e-commerce guy. So the co-tenancy thing, sure. so it sounds like what you're saying is the anchors, they have their deal with them all. But then like the small stores, they have some way of attaching and saying, all right, we'll pay you this rent, but we want that anchor to stay. Is, is that a pretty common thing? And
2: uh, Yeah. It is. They would look at a mall, and they'd say, look, a mall that's desirable to us has this set of, you know, characteristics. They're going to want, you know, a population surrounding the mall within 20 minutes drive time that has so much, you know, so many over 100,000 incomes, household incomes. And when you look in the mall, you know, in a market that's got two malls, and one of them's an older mall, like if your coach think about it, you say, you know, we're going to sign this lease, and we'll agree to these terms that are you know, at the top of the industry for good A malls uh, and rent. But, you know, it's it's contingent on there being enough demand from consumers over time in that mall. And one way that we can lock that in is to say, look, we want co-tenancy with all or some subset of the following 10 retailers. And we want to see an Apple store there. We want to see a Lulu store there because we don't go to the store. We don't go and open a coach store in a mall where the population's moved on and all we got is, you know, nail salons and ice cream shops left in there. Right. So it's a way of of protecting themselves. So when you go to say, we're going to close one of these stores, boy, there's a big group of people at the table for the sit down and you say, all right, you know, when the Macy's closes these, however many retailers, it triggers their co-tenancy clause. It allows them to get out of here, allows them to move 10 miles down the street to the newer shopping center that's got better traffic, or we can renegotiate the rents lower, um, for them, if we want to try to keep them, it's just it becomes a very complex process, and lots and lots of hands are at the table during those discussions.
0: Do you have an estimate of how many malls will close if if you're if you kind of think 10 k is directionally right on stores, do you guys look at kind of what the mall impact is?
2: You know our our retail experts that we lean on to help us with thinking through that pointed to maybe twenty to thirty percent of the malls in the u s eventually will will go away. No time frame on it because, you know, for example, we we hosted uh, we hosted a dinner recently with a couple of very very prominent experts in in real estate in retail real estate who said just as an example, you know it's much talked about you know if, if Sears was to end up going away, it would take ten full years to repurpose those those Sears boxes. If Sears literally just went lights out at some point, and I don't have a view on whether they will, but if they literally went lights out. It would take 10 full years to sit down store by store and say, what does this community need? Can we convert this into a cheesecake factory? Can we turn this into a bowling alley? Can we turn it into a brew pub? Does it need to be a call center or an industrial center? Or does it just need to be pulled down? So there's going to be a lot of one-off evaluation of what to do with each of these. At the end of the day, I wouldn't be surprised if you get to 20 or 30% of the malls. And the, the numbers you were talking about, um, they also include things like obviously Sports Authority went away last year, right? So some of those <laughs> some of those stores are not exactly on mall, right? So some of those are off
0: mall. Yeah. Yeah, those are all there's a mix there. Um it just kind of puts some bounds on it. Twenty to thirty percent of malls, how many malls are there? are there like fifteen hundred malls? Is that right?
2: Yeah, I have th- I've heard numbers like that. It depends on how you get into definition. Like Kohl's as a retailer recover, they're they're largely off mall, but they're in these power centers that include, you know, a Lowe's or a Target or a Best Buy a lot of times. It's, you know, the, the numbers change a little bit depending on how you define it, but I would say 1500 is a, a, a good guess.
0: Right. So 30% would be like 500 malls closing over some some period of time down the road.
2: Yeah. And some of those, you know, probably several hundred of those you, you know, even if you live near one, you probably forgot it was there, right? Like there's some pretty old Real estate there.
0: So uh, that's pretty gloom and doom. Any any silver linings in there? <laughs>
2: um, you know, I think that you know, in I think that I'm not I'm not like a retail is is dead kind of person, but um, I do think we need to you know get get the, the total industry store count down much much lower before returns and margins can stabilize on you know from a lower base of assets from a smaller number of stores. Um, so I think that. Pressure is going to be on right now on the retailers to you know, move aggressively, to reposition themselves, to be able to kind of work through some of what's coming for the next few years as the consumers continue shifting online. And then as you get into equilibrium, those stocks will have a little bit easier time. The brands, like I said, though, the brands that are sold within those, and this is part of it, right? Like you think about you know, a Macy's or even a Sports Authority or a Foot Locker, there's a lot of their businesses selling other people's brands. In the example of Foot Locker, you know, Nike and Adidas and Under Armour, they went and built big, strong, cool websites over the last five years too, which didn't exist before. So you've got the brands that are sold inside your boxes available to consumers elsewhere in some situations. So as you kind of work through that, you say, all right, well, you can see some natural advantages for the brands who you know they don't have to worry about you know taking down all this brick and mortar that they set up over the last hundred years or whatever it might be, but they gotta figure out how to get their Product to where the consumer wants to buy it in big size, and that's you know, tricky. in In Europe, they've got they've got big online retailers that are not called Amazon. Believe it or not, you know they've got like Amazon, they've got ASOS and zolandos and things things that are called different names in Amazon. Because not everybody wants to shop for everything on Amazon. Um, we don't really have that in the U.S. I don't have any public companies to cover in that are just retail and apparel. Uh, sorry, apparel and footwear retailers online. So it's really about just figuring out, you know, where the consumer is going to buy these products in five years. And frankly, that's the that's the question that would flummox these brands the most right now. If you ask them the very simple question to a big, sophisticated brand company, just say, hey, you know, right now you're sold in every one of Macy's doors or every one of, um, you know, uh, with some other sporting goods stores' doors. Where's the consumer going to buy your product in five years? it's it's surprising to hear how unsophisticated an answer you get from some people. And it just tells you that very smart people really don't know exactly where the ball is headed right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, it is the obvious answer for those brands that they have to go direct. Is that what you're seeing or what other answers do you get? I mean,
2: some of, some of them will, yeah, they, they should all, they all have to have a direct business. There's no doubt about it. Your, your own website um, will be where you know you have to you have to have a little bit of skin in the game to lead the retailers to show you know, your third party retail. If you're Nike and you say, look, we we showcased this product this way, it did really good. Here's a bunch of the data behind it. Um, let's let's build out some things on your website to maximize this opportunity. If it came along. Um, you should use it to showcase your very best product, your elite pinnacle. Product, you should you know use it to showcase um, a very wide array of your product, um, and then you have to go out to the brick and mortar world or to the to your third party retailers, and you got to segment the product. You got to make sure it's not the same you know Nike exercise shirt at Macy's that it is at Kohl's that it is at Chasey Penny. It's got to be different product, and the consumer needs to get different things um, in different places. So that it does you know I think that the next five years will be easier for the brands because they don't have a brick and mortar to deal with, but if they're not they're not free of you know, things like that to scratch their head about and say, okay, this does shift quite a bit of burden to us. Do we go to Amazon? Do we even go? Because a lot of the, a lot of the concerns they have with Amazon today are concerns they had with other blank, you know, insert name of huge retailer from the past and Hanes brands we cover. They've, they've been dealing with, you know, Walmart's temptation to want to carry this very strong brand that a lot of Americans like on their shelves But at the same time, it's really profitable for Walmart to go and manufacture their own private label underwear and put it on the shelf next to Haynes. So it's not, you know, Amazon. a lot of the problems and concerns they have about going into Amazon and what it means for them, not exactly brand new to them, but it is, you know, the next round of of old retail problems.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, we've had a lot of brands on the show, um, and obviously a a big topic for them is is going direct. Like, it feels like one of the big impediments to going direct – not impediments, but downsides to going direct for them is they sort of benefit from the inefficiencies of the wholesale market. So you're, you're Nike and you, you come out with a new skew and before there's any consumer demand for that skew, all the wholesalers have to buy enough to fill all their shelves. And so when, when your distribution channel gets way more efficient and you're, you're, you know, selling through Amazon on demand or through your own website on demand, um, Suddenly, you're not selling those shoes until the consumers actually want them. So that feels like that's a little bit of a challenge on the brand side. And then at the same time, those wholesale retailers are looking at their future and saying, "Shoot, uh, there aren't going to be a lot of middlemen in the future. If if we want to, you know, maintain our relationship with the consumer, we we need to build our own brands." And it it seems like we're watching a lot of retailers kind of moving beyond private label and trying to build their own aspirational brands. And you you know, you certainly like uh Amazon's got a full complement of a of of new apparel brands but you also see uh Target and you know uh rumored Best Buy ac- or rumored Walmart acquisitions and all, all these these traditional wholesale retailers look like they're investing in the brand space are we on a collision course yes.
2: um again it's not a new problem you know probably half of the products sold at uh JCPenney or at a Kohl's are or- private brands, private or exclusive brands that they, you know, design and develop in-house. So it it, it won't be a new problem. Um, But at the same time, it's, you know, I I just have a a natural bias when any company, a brand or a retailer tells you, here's this thing that we're going to do. It's a big part of our strategy and our growth. And uh, it's not really that related to what we're amazing at. It's a non-core thing, but we think we're going to do great. (laughs) Like, all right, we're going to, you know, we're going to develop, luxury and aspirational brands in here inside this company. It's got a lot of expertise in real estate selection and product, you know, procurement and and curation of really cool collections of apparel for consumers. And all of a sudden we're going to actually design it now. We're going to find relationships with factories in China to do this efficiently and build sourcing offices on the ground there. It's a tricky, it's a tricky game. Um, You know, the, the brands that there is there's a you know a carrot and a stick to go and to go and direct. You own all the retail, you own all the pain. There's a lot you know you can make a lot of money if you you're Nike and you sell a, sh- a pair of shoes through your own website at a really efficient you know really high price point and don't have to mark it down. And sometimes that can be for example higher than you would sell it for at Foot Locker or Finish Line. And that and that's great and you get all the rewards, right? But what if it's what if it really doesn't sell and you get all the pain? And there's no one, there's no one to share the pain with uh, in that scenario. You know, a lot of these, re, a lot of these wholesale brands, if the product doesn't perform, they'll go, they'll go back and, you know, they'll go back to the retailers and they'll say, we'll offer you some you know, money after the fact to help with, you know, marking down the product that didn't perform. or we'll take some back. We'll move it to our factory outlets. We'll clear some, some through our sales. So consumers don't walk in here and see, you know, stacks of shoes or shirts on sale and start thinking bad things about our brand. None of the brands want that either. So, you know, that's when it kind of becomes a village and everybody's got a vested interest in not having, you know, leftover inventory that didn't perform laying around.
1: For sure. I feel like some of the other uh, challenges you hear about uh, apparel brands in particular is um, I, I've now heard a bunch of times that that the trend is just that apparel, like good apparel costs less. And so, you know, potentially the consumer is buying as much apparel as she ever did, um, but it, it just... Cost less, and therefore is less revenue to those brands than it used to be. As supply chains get more efficient, and manufacturing gets more efficient, and all of that is—is is that a risk for these apparel brands? Is that their their AOVs are just going down?
2: Yeah, if you look at um, you know to your point earlier about you know the off pricers are who you know pride themselves on having product fifty or sixty percent below equivalent product at department stores. They've they've obviously occupied a lot of the incremental retail square footage in the country over the last 10 years also you've had names like h&m um zara zara and then a new one if you've heard of primark that's coming over from uh from the uk they're you know they're starting to build stores on the east coast and they're even lower priced than any of these guys so if you think about it all every square foot of retail that's being added in the physical world in in the u.s is charging lower prices than the, than the square than the square footage that was here before There is pretty consistent downward pressure on on pricing in this industry. Um, Over time, you know, over time, these brands have been able to manage it. But when you have things like you know big shocks to the system, like you manufacture everything in China and the currency goes one way on you, and all of a sudden you're buying things a lot more expensively than you thought you were when you built the factory there, then they can't really keep up with um, you know deflationary pricing on apparel in the U.S. Over time, it's been it's been okay, but it's not a It's not a great situation to be in when your your pricing mechanism is going backwards and the consumer's consistently looking over their shoulder and saying, look, I can get this, you know, whatever, Levi's or Skechers shoes or whatever it is. I can get these at TJ Maxx and, you know, it's last season's product, but it's so much lower on price point and uh, that's going to win the day for me. That that wins my purchase.
1: Yeah, got it. And then I guess just one more on brands. Um, The other thing you hear is that the, just the basic model for creating desire for a particular apparel brand has dramatically getting disrupted, right? And so you know that you hear the old model, kind of you know you have the merchant princes, the Mickey Drexors or whatever that decide what's going to be hot, and um, they uh, they you know go to Fashion Week and show that stuff, and it, it takes them like nine months to to uh, get those products into the market, and everyone buys the same thing because it has the same logo on it, and you know that these days. Uh, it's a lot more likely to be some micro influencer on YouTube that's that's driving demand for something, yeah. you know, in, in a much shorter turn than than it is uh, Mickey.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And you you can speed things up a lot. Your example of Mickey Drexler is the the J crew example, and they own all their own products. So they can say, this is catching on fast. Let's go quickly. Whereas you think about the relationship that you pointed to before with like a a Ralph Lauren and a Macy's or a Calvin Klein and a Macy's. There's only so much you can speed up when there's, you know, more people in the decision-making chain. So there's advantages and disadvantages to being able to speed up and chase trends these days. You know, I'd say the, you know, the the brands every brand that opens their mouth and every retail that's opened their mouth they've got a speed initiative going on to try and speed those things up to chase trends faster um, to your to your other point you know back in the day what you you know what you decided to wear and thought was cool was what you know, again, I'll, I'll pick on them cause they're a good bell leather. but what, what the good people at Macy's, uh, found for you and the product that they brought to your town and put in the stores that, you know, mate, you looked at and said, that's an aspirational purchase for me. This is what I want to look like. This is what I want people to think of me when I, when I dress. And, and I remember, I remember being a kid and, you know, we had to go, we had to go on vacation to California for me to get a pair of vans that I saw in a movie on some guy or something like that. Right. Like those days are done. Those days are over. So now, to your point, you see somebody on Instagram, you see somebody in music video, you see somebody on YouTube. That's an influencer, or, you know. Like Coach just signed Selena Gomez, one of the most, one of the highest Instagram followings you could imagine. Um, so you know the amount of viewership that they get by going through her. And there's also you know with younger consumers, there's a bit of there's a bit of social currency that happens by being the first kid at your high school to show up at the party on Friday night with some brand that you saw on it. A funny YouTube clip, in the background, and you know, you figured out where to find it. It's some small retailer in California on the internet, and had a ship to you, and that was yours. You found it, and you were first, and you won. We call that the social currency of being the first one to find that. Those kind of things just did not happen um, 10, 15 years ago or more. So for sure, these things are changing very, very quickly. It's a whole different mindset than what old merchants who are used to really doing a great job of picking out very good collections of apparel and footwear for people thought about. It's um, it's, it's very different
1: than it was. Yeah, yeah. God bless Sean Penn for wearing those vans in uh, Fast Times in Ridgemont High, by the way.
2: <laughs> you knew exactly what I was talking
1: about. Huh? <laughs> I'm, I'm tracking. Um, you know, one of the insightful things I heard recently, and I, I wish I could remember who I first heard it from, but they they were talking about the the Instagram problem and that, like, in the old days, you were, you know, if you were a kid in high school, you were one of 200 or maybe even one of 2,000, and, you know, it was possible to be pretty unique by just getting to a good store and, you know, spending a little bit more for the, the premium product or whatever. Uh, but, but trying to be unique amongst your, your pool of 10,000 Instagram friends, um, is a, is a whole new level of challenge and you, you basically can't do it in a mall.
2: Yeah, it's, it's pretty tough. You know, it's, um, yeah, I'm, I remember growing up and going to school, and the, and the the very clear trends just ran through your school like wildfires. Like if this was the aspirational brand, if you remember some of the brands from the 80s and 90s, that ran through like in big, big size um, as trends. You know, like we just we just had a big one with, yeah, you know, uh, or you still have one with you know with Adidas selling their very old, decades old, 30 year old superstars and Stan Smiths, and every kid's got to have a pair, and that was like a clear. Old school trend to me, like that just came through, and that's what everybody wanted, and that's how it used to be. Those are getting fewer and further between. It's much more, you know, micro merchandising and individuality. Um, uh, that you know, the, the formula for that is really not, you know, going to your traditional department store and seeing, you know, what they got in in the stacks and racks in those stores these days.
0: One um, one follow up on kind of the brand topic what What do you think the answer is in five years, where is the consumer gonna buy your product what you know if a brand and I know this isn't your business, but if if you left Wall Street and went into consulting um, and you're you're sitting there at a McKinsey or one of those kind of consulting places uh, and the brand asked you what 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 do you think the answer is?
2: I do think we need I think we'll get to a point where there's gonna be some platforming. I think that um, right now. If you and I wanted to go start a brand today, it, we would find it very affordable relative to history to do that. To find decent manufacturing capacity in, in Asia or, or elsewhere um, to bring it onto the U.S. shores to get good distribution from, you know, most of the digital native e-commerce sites, you know, that are trying to be better brand, you know, good best in the in the spectrum of good, better, best, trying to be the better and best. Um, they're still, you know, they're still fighting for their namesake as well. So you can probably find pretty good boutique y type distribution for a brand right now, if you're a startup, you know, good better or better or best brand. Um those so I, I would say the barrier to entry right now is fairly low um but I don't think it stays low I think it's going to go up I think it's getting I think it's getting harder to compete on price I mean everybody's walking around with a mall in their pocket these days right you don't have to walk into a store and haggle with somebody I know the lowest price immediately thanks a lot to your your good friends at Amazon I know the lowest price that I can find this thing on quickly and I walk into the store armed with it so I, I think it's going to get harder I think you're going to see you know Prices continue to compress, and I don't know if manufacturing will get cheaper or more expensive, but um, this industry certainly been good at you know, chasing low-cost manufacturing over time. But then you go through some of the things that we were thinking about early in the year where a lot of these stocks got hit really hard when there was talk coming out of Washington that we were going to put a tax on the border. Well, guess what? Industry imports just about everything from across the border, mm-hmm. right? So these stocks got hit really, really hard on that discussion when that was like a primary conversation, you think about that. And I think you're going to get to a point where you're going to find more of these brands saying, you know what? I want to get myself attached to a big supply chain, like a VF Corp or, you know, PVH owns a a basket of brands or coaches now starting to own some brands. I want to leverage their manufacturing efficiency, their relationships in Asia, their, you know, brand building, internal consultancy, whatever they have, you know, VF Corp is very good at building, their brands. You've had them on the show before, like North Face and Timberland and Vans. They're very good at consulting these guys on, on their marketing strategies and their distribution strategies. I think the value of that is going to go up. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's still companies of some size, but I wouldn't be surprised if you see a much more fragmented apparel and footwear market going forward.
0: Got it. Uh, that's a good segue. The uh, you know we've kind of nibbled around the edges, and it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't spend a fair amount of time directly talking about Amazon. Now, I realize they're not in your coverage universe, so sure. I'm not going to ask you like EBITDA three decimal places or anything. But uh, you know, how uh, from the the lens of your coverage universe, you, you had kind of Macy's probably three years ago. Terry Lundgren kind of famously said, "Oh, good luck in apparel. You know, you guys won't be able to." Deal with the returns without having stores, and you know that 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 turned out to be a bit of a bad call um, are are these guys still in denial about Amazon? Do they have a strategy um, you know where where are retailers when it comes to their their Amazon strategy?
2: Uh, you know there's been a lot of turnover among executives in the space lately, and one of them on their way out the door actually said to me recently. I just said, you know, that's, you know, probably a lot of headaches, you know, over the next few years, probably retiring at a great time or something like that. And they said, yeah, you know, and Amazon's a hell of a competitor, too. <laughs> you know, they kind of course corrected me on that answer, you know, where Amazon is just, you know, if you think about your Harvard case study, what are the four drivers of a consumer purchase and think about how big convenience is and the fact that everything can get delivered to you in two days or less now. Boy, that's a real kick in the gut to have to deal with for anybody. So, mm-hmm. I would say though, I don't think Terry was a hundred percent wrong though. I don't think you know, I, I think that the consumer does like having a place nearby to go and return things. Um, I do think there is value in brick and mortar. It it doesn't look like it in looking at some of the stock prices in my group because they're all gotta go from a lot of brick and mortar to a lot less brick and mortar, but I do think there's value in a store count of a certain size and then there's a lot of there's a lot of reality in, in his comment that, you know, about what Amazon is going to or not going to want to deal with. And look, they're not going to go away. It's a high margin category and you can make a lot of money on it. But right now, if you look on their, on their website, it really looks like it's, it's much more focused on predictable, Um, inventories and in categories that are more basic that they can look at and say, we know with some certainty how much of this is going to go out the door. And it's much less in categories. Like you would expect to see it like Nordstrom, right? As like an example of those guys got to nail fashion every quarter. It's like, we're a very affluent person who cares a lot about this season and that season goes to shop for their clothes. And when that stuff doesn't sell this spring, they got to sit down and come up with a markdown strategy, get it out the door, figure out how to work with the brands to, you know, move product around, all those things. That's a whole different part of retail than just figuring out, you know, predictable inventory flows in categories like your basic Levi's jeans or your basic Hanes brands, um, underwear and T-shirts and stuff like that. Uh, you know, if there's a little left over at the end of the season, it's fine. Not a big deal. Uh, yeah. the, the fashion categories are much tougher than that.
0: Cool, and and you you hit on this a tad earlier, but I want to drill into it. You've you've done some really interesting research on you know what how brands should think about Amazon, um, and kind of the in your coverage universe, you have the, the the bookends. You have Under Armour, who's dramatically embraced Amazon, and you have Nike, that's essentially shunned Amazon. Um, you know what. Where where do you think brands should fall on that spectrum? Or, you know, what are they talking about? What are the kinds of topics that, that brands are thinking about in this whole kind of Amazon dilemma?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. We do a lot of work on that and talk to a lot of um, people in the Amazon ecosystem on that. At the end of the day, in this category, what's specific is the brands care the most about what their product looks like and, and pricing. Obviously, pricing, everybody cares about pricing. But yeah you i know, I won't name the brand, but if you go on Amazon right now and search on one of the brands I cover very, very basic you know product and it's you know one of the brands that doesn't have a relationship with Amazon, the search that it comes that comes up on amazon is it won't take you long to realize that is not what that company wants its product looking like. A, a lot of it is like dude took a shirt out of a box and it's like wrinkled and they just threw it on a table and took a picture of it and now it's on Amazon, and so there's my like there's my like wrinkled shirt. On Amazon. <laughs> yeah. And that's right at the top as you search on my brand, right? So, you know, those are the things that these brands care about. Like they need to inspire you to like live a better life by the clothing that you wear. And that's what you see in all the billboards, right? And that's not always what's reflected on Amazon. So that's what they're thinking about. They're trying to think of, and then you go like I'll I'll call it out because it's I think they've done a really nice job, but like Levi's if you search on Levi's on Amazon and then you click on the, you know the red Levi's logo, it whisks you away to a virtual Levi's shop and shop that's got you know their advertising campaign, the videos that they created at Levi's that show the product exactly how they want on their models. You click into the product, full-size runs, full color runs. It's like you know you're actually dealing with like 100 percent legitimate Levi's sales, and you're, you're leveraging all the great things about Amazon at the same time, right? That's what all the brands are trying to figure out. Now I don't know if, if if Levi's just happens to be first there because they cut some kind of a different deal or accept less profits up front or anything like that, but they're in their they're you know, one of the first brands that I would say is a great example of really doing Amazon well in the consumers' eyes. In the consumers eyes. I think everybody wants to figure out and will have to figure out how to do that eventually, because look, there's not a lot of transaction growth in the US. You're either talking to folk, folks like TJ Maxx and Ross that are growing category or you're talking to amazon if you want category growth so everybody's gonna have to wrestle with this eventually um but those are the things that they care about the most and probably the things that you know they only sit down at a table and pound out with amazon the most over the next few years
0: yep and then uh i'm by no means a fashion guru but i figured you'd have a point of view on this uh they just announced today that they've hired and i'm gonna totally butcher this but christine bochamp is that how you say it um, and I think she's been around a lot of your coverage universe, uh, as kind of a, a well-known fashion executive, uh, with a stint at Ralph Lauren and other places. Maybe Jason knows better than I do. Um, is that, is that a, what's that mean to have her at Amazon?
2: I mean, that's, you know, to the point of, you know, when I said earlier that they're not going away in this category and there's some things that they're maybe not the best at but in no way should anyone expect them to go away. They're going to keep investing in this. I think they bought a full square block in Brooklyn to build a photo studio for their apparel business a few years ago. And, and I remember, you know, riding around in cabs in New York and half the taxis in town had a Amazon fashion, uh, advertising on the top of the cab. Like they're, you know, they're not going to go away. I don't, I don't, I don't think anybody's foolish enough to think that they're going to go away or stop pushing in this category. Um, but you know, you do see you do see moments like that go by, and you're like, "Well, this is a this is a turning point. This is a data point that they're getting more, not less, serious about this category. They want these brands in. I, I guarantee you, they're circling the Nikes and Ralph Lauren's of the world, the European luxury guys. They want they want those guys on Amazon uh, very, very badly. And I'm sure to some extent, all those guys want to figure out how to have a very you know profitable relationship with Amazon too. Um, so you see a data point like that go around, like hiring her, and you're like, you know this is a reminder. They're very serious about this.
1: Yep. And that, uh, I'm always trepidatious when I, anytime I hear this sentence, yeah, but this, this next category will be extra hard for Amazon and have unique barriers. Um, because I just feel like they've knocked down so many barriers in categories that they moved into. Um, but one you do hear about a lot lately is, uh, the, the higher fashion guys go, yeah, Amazon has totally done great in apparel. Um, but, fashion is a whole different thing from apparel and, and, you know, Am- Amazon doesn't have the right DNA to win in fashion. Like, do you, do you hear that? And uh, what, what, what's your point of view there? Like, should the fashion guys be worried about Amazon?
2: Absolutely. A hundred percent. It's, you know, there's, uh, there's a bit there's a bit of a stigma about being you know what some people call the everything store for anybody, right? Like when Walmart or a Target or any retailers in the past has become the everything store in the country there's a there's a certain amount of like you know i'm gonna I'm gonna go to this new store in town called Coles because i don't I don't really like buying my shirts at the same place I buy my dog food and toothpaste, and I want to feel like a fashion relevant human being and and things like that. But you know at the end of the day, if you kick out that that you know, leg under the stool that is convenient and it's just so easy to get this stuff, and they've kind of got the product that I want anyway, and it's called fashion and you know high fashion stuff. If they get their hands on it and they can uh, and they can sell it to me in this way that I like buying things, I would not assume that they're not going to be able to figure out fashion. And look, a lot of this stuff is shirts and pants. it's lightweight, it's foldable. it's very easy to ship. It's you know, it's, you know, it's we I think on on your last show, you were talking about them getting into pharmaceuticals and stuff. I mean, what could seem easier by comparison than selling high-end shirts when you're talking about trying to figure out how to get into
1: pharmaceuticals? Absolutely. We, one of the uh, ex Amazonians on the show was talking about a category like live plants being a little tougher. Uh, and then I, I I finished that show only to find out that my wife had ordered a bunch of live plants for our aquarium from Amazon. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Nothing
0: is yeah. safe. Yeah, nothing. yeah, I got a live plant uh, for Mother's Day um, on Prime Now that it came. It was really well done. Yeah.
2: <laughs> wow, I yeah. actually didn't know that. That's impressive.
0: It,
1: yeah. it, impressive and scary. Um, a couple things I just wanted to cover real quickly. One of the plays we're seeing from a lot of the traditional department stores is the if you can not beat them, join them" strategy, and it seems like every, every department store now has a, an, an off-price concept. Um, is that of a long-term viable strategy for those guys is that, you know, they, they, they make a lot of noise about it, not being cannibalistic and, and stuff, but that, that seems questionable.
2: Yeah. We'll, we'll see. I'd say it's, You know, it's, it's always easy to set up 10 or 20 stores and, and look at the economics and say, you know, this first 10 or 20 that we put in the very best markets we could think of to do this, um, they're going really, it's going really well. So let's go on to the next 10 or 20. That's not, that's not a mistake to think like that. That's good economics, but, um, you know, we'll see when it, when it become, you know, to become a scalable business, you know, what, um, it's it's tough to think about when you think about like what people at TJ Maxx and Ross do. They're they're kind of like you know they're they're like the wolf in Pulp Fiction, right? They're here to fix problems for you. If you got too much inventory at the end of the season, we're TJ Maxx. We can buy some of this leftover stuff from you, Levi's or PVH, you know, Calvin Klein, whatever it is. We can buy a lot of it. We've got a lot of stores, and we can break it up and we can do what we call camouflage it for you across thousands of stores, so the consumer doesn't come in and see a pile to the ceiling of Calvin Klein shirts, they see four or five units and they're like, well, I don't sense that there's a problem with Calvin Klein based on the small number of units in here. Right. So that's a lot of value for them to, you know, they, they put cash on the barrelhead, take a huge amount of inventory off your hand at the end of the season. And they never come back for markdown money. So the off-pricers add a lot of value like that. You know, now you think about your Coles or your Macy's or even if JCPenney tries to get into something like that, different animal right? It's the same guys that are buying in-season stuff from you who are, you know, coming back to you and saying, hey, we want to kind of also serve this functionality of like solving problems, but like some of the problems occur in our other stores. So we're going to figure out this iterative process with you. It's, it's a much more complicated thing.
0: Got it. One of the, um, so one of the other trends we wanted to kind of Check in with you on is this athleisure kind of trend. It, it was sure. very hot and, and growing really well. And, you know, I think Lululemon's in there. You put Nike and Under Armour in there and uh, there's a lot of other kind of things going on there. Uh, but it seems like Nike and Under Armour have, have kind of slowed down. Is, is that the, something else going on there or is athleisure kind of run its course?
2: Um, I don't think Athleisure is done. There's still a lot of demand from the retailers who are, you know, in questions like that I always think about who's standing closest to the consumer and has good insights as to what the consumer is telling them they want. And, you know, your Kohl's and your Macy's and your J.C. JCPenney's, are they're all, you know, still expanding their, their space dedicated to these brands that you're talking about. You know, Lululemon slowed down a bit in the most recent quarter, but you know, uh, I would say they're, they're, far from the worst situation I have in my, in my coverage groups. So I still think athleisure is very much a, a megatrend. It's been going on. What did Lulu, Lulu IPO in 2007, Under Armour in 2005? It's a little, I mean, it went on for a little too long. They call it a, a, a fad or a trend. I happen to think that a lot of the problems right now, um, you know, even the best of the brands would have trouble when a top five retailer in the U.S. goes bankrupt. And that's what happened last year with Sports Authority. Mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of extra inventory sitting around. There's, there's unplanned liquidation sales going on here and there that are causing distractions. It's, you know, to your point earlier, it's an industry that has long lead times. The brands order stuff from factories nine months ahead of time. It's on boats coming over from Asia, things like that. So a retailer shuts down, and we already, like, by, you know, what sports was shut down in the middle of last year. A lot of these guys had already ordered Christmas product for them. Right, so then that stuff shows up and there's no stores, you know? Yeah. So I think that that's causing a little bit of pressure on pricing, a little too much inventory in the industry, people having to mark things down to get it out of their stores, to get the fresh stuff in. Um, I, I would say there there is, to be fair, a little bit of complaining from the from the trenches about the uh, impact of some of the innovation coming out lately from the brands. It hasn't been as splashy to really give the consumer a compelling reason to, to come on into the stores. Um, so I would say it's split between the two.
0: Well, Jason and I are doing our best. Uh, I think we both invested a lot in yoga pants, so hopefully that'll that'll you help. Did. <laughs> For yourselves,
2: right? For yourself, <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely, we do the show wearing our yoga pants. Great. That's an <laughs>
1: that's an image I won't be able to unimagine. Um, what about footwear? Is it basically the same set of trends that are playing out there? Or is there anything unique happening in the the shoe side of the business?
2: You know, footwear it has flowed a little bit. To be fair, I would say um, you've seen a lot of momentum. Out of Adidas over the last year, you see Nike, Under Armour slow down on the footwear side. Um, it's in general the footwear category is I, I would prefer it to apparel. Um, it's you know it's 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 not very hard to manufacture apparel, and it's you know there's a lot more competitive encroachment. All the retailers get great product in from the brands. They eventually got to try to go figure out how to do a private label version of it, and there's nothing but the factories lined up waiting to help you with that. Footwear is much different. It's actually really hard to manufacture this stuff. There's not as much competitive problems with private label and things like that. So it has slowed down a little bit. There's a little bit of a lack of innovation there. But I would I would put my money on footwear um coming back faster than apparel though.
0: Interesting. So one so we started kind of at a thirty thousand foot level and kind of take you back there to close it out. Um sure. sounds like we're gonna Trim thirty percent of malls. There's a lot of stores to close. We're overstored. Um, those kinds of trends. And where, where does it end? Do we do we level out at some equilibrium, or are we going to a bit of a tailspin here? Because. You know, um, one of the things I've seen is when these guys do close these stores, they, uh, you know, it seems like they're always a little surprised by how much revenue they lost. Like there seems to be a little bit of a domino effect. We've also heard from folks on the show that it hits their online sales. How do you how do you land the plane when this is going on?
2: yeah and that's why um you know to the point earlier it was about you know when you hear brands and you ask them where they're going to be distributed in, in five years, there's not clear answers same for, for for retailers. They're very much answering like look, we can see you know with some reasonable visibility out twelve eighteen months in our business, and we think we're gonna need you know call it a hundred fewer stores. Let's get there and stop and you know, and, and, and check in again. I mean, Macy's, like I said, is closing hundred this year. They did close 60 in the prior year and then a couple before that. So it's just, is getting bigger right now across the industry. Um, I think you'll end up, you know, you'll see big broad based chains like that and like the four to 600 store count probably eventually. And you've got, and you've got some stores like, you know, like Lululemon or Kate Spade, which coach, coach just bought that their, their starting point is a very low store count and they probably just like cut it off at that point and focus on e income to your point if you close a store um there's been there's a lot of focus on transferring your sales right if you're if you're jc penny or Kohl's closing a store in a market you want to try and test a few of these and figure out what's the best way to kind of redirect traffic to your next closest store or to your e-commerce site there's a couple of these retailers that'll just flat out tell you look when we close a store we lose every penny of the sales in that zip code it literally goes to zero and then there's more hopeful people that have closed stores and that, you know, I won't single anybody out, but they say, we think we can retain about 25% of those sales in a nearby store or e-commerce. I mean, the, the range of answers that different companies have had for what they can retain is so wide that I would consider, I, I think there's a huge amount of risk if you hear anybody tell you they're going to retain those sales. And they're putting a lot of science to it, too. It's not, they're not, it's not because they're not trying to figure it out. But, um, you know, so I think we're, the store counts are going to go lower how much sales we lose as we close those stores is very hard to predict. And then the other variable is, well, what happens to my forecast I laid out here about what I'm going to retain in my stores when like a bunch of other stores around me close that I didn't really think about. And that market just goes cold or that mall goes dark or, you know, everybody's kind of reroutes to a mall down the street that I wasn't planning on them going to. Right. So I think it's going to be, um, the, the ability of these guys to forecast their sales, Um, with reasonable certainty, is is fairly reduced right now.
1: Very cool. And, uh, Michael, it has happened again. Uh, We have used a perfectly good hour of our listeners' time, so we want to thank you very much for joining us. And if folks are interested in following your research online, uh, where can they find you or follow you?
2: Um, yeah, you, uh, that's a that's a tougher one. Our, you know, our clients all have access to our research. We have a lot of private wealth advisors at UBS. So if you um, if you invest through UBS, you get access to it. Um, and then we do we do a lot of media like this, so we're always uh, we're always findable somewhere.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it.
2: Thanks, guys, and a lot of fun.
0: Until
1: next time, happy e